0: Pro 7 radio. This is episode 458. It's just me and Jason today. We're going to take a shot at music in kind of a way that we haven't. This whole idea came out of a line from the committee of 300 book written by Coleman It was the idea that rock and roll was based on a 12, a tonal scale. And while Jason did some looking and we talked to people who are very knowledgeable in music, it's up in the air of whether that's absolutely correct, but I get the idea of it. And when I look at it on the level, in the way it was offered in Coleman's book, I guess I accepted it. But as we get into hour two, Jason makes a run back on what Coleman said. And uh, we modify the idea of what that 12 tonal scale may or may not be. But this all relates to Dionysus, right? It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And there's an earlier version of that. Uh, Some people may be familiar with the Dionysian Um, parties or the Bacchanalia with Bacchus. uh, As a matter of fact, in the book that I've referenced so many times called the, The Worship of Augustus Caesar, he equates those two things as basically versions of the same thing and even includes the Buddha, believe it or not. But it's not the Buddha you're thinking of. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a pretty decent
1: good morning.
0: It is not cold here, so I'm happy. I think we're going to get some free water from God today. It looks like it's going to rain, but let's jump in and do what we can do here. This is absolutely a unique view on the origins of music. And by the way, there's another thing that we're going to cover here, it has to do with a man named. Uh, what the heck's his name, Jason? Ad-
1: Theodore Adorno.
0: Yeah, Theodore Adorno. The interesting thing here is I happen to know somebody who knows most of the people that are mentioned in the committee of 300, which it all happened. This man wrote and published in 91, and damn near everything he published has come to pass. And in that, he hangs the creation of the Beatles on Tavistock and the music written by a man named Adorno. There are other Beatles researchers who have hit on that. For my part, I accept it, but I've kind of had an inside view from people who actually knew these people. Anyhow,
1: draw from the hip. Shoot, Jason. Dionysus is the Greek god of the grape harvest, winemaking, orchards and fruit, vegetation, fertility, insanity, ritual madness, religious ecstasy, festivity, and theater in ancient Greek religion and myth. He's also known as Bacchus by the Greeks, a name that would later be adopted by the Romans. He would also be associated with the name Liber Pater by the Romans.
0: So the Liber Pater idea almost feels to me like the, just the, the Romanization, as they did. They took the ideas that, you know, it's it's claimed, and it's probably true, that you weren't educated unless you were taught by a Greek. And what the Romans were really good at was government and war and controlling things. And apparently they admired the high culture of the Greeks. So we see so many things that are just adopted by the Romans. It's hard to know because for those of you who have read the book, Augustus Caesar, it's disheartening because if it's true, they've freaking censored everything. There's nothing, almost nothing we got that they didn't censor, rewrite, change to include the marbles, by the way, to include the things carved in stone. Uh, It's a bit disheartening, but basically Pater seems to be a romanization of the idea of Bacchus. Now, the reason we're starting out here is because what we're going to endeavor to do is show that the social engineering that we call rock and roll was based on a scheme that already existed in the world. That's the scheme that we're hitting here. In other words, there was already an archetype for it. Um, they just re- It's almost like everything we see in the world could be rated related back to a Greek myth of some kind. As a matter of fact, it may well be. That may well be true. It's just that my view is not broad enough of Greek literature to to pick it out. We've nailed it for CNN. We've nailed it for a few things. So it could be that almost everything rolls back. But what we're going to do here is show that the kind of drug orgy with usually a human sacrifice that never gets mentioned is the root archetype that got rolled up into the programming of sex drugs and rock and roll of the 60s, launched by Tavistock, by the way.
1: Now, if you look at everything that Dionysus is supposed to represent, the groundwork for everything that rock and roll would become known for. The wildness of it, it's all right there laid out for you already. Yeah,
0: there's the archetype. In other words, they wanted to do something socially engineer, and they needed uh, archetypes, ideas, um, foundational truths, and they found it in the Greek myth. It was already there. And I don't think there's any denying this, but when you, when we get further in and we start talking about the tonality of the scales and other things, this is what I always talk about when people get angry. Basically, I had to come with reckoning that the music that I grew up and loved, which was a little more musical than so-called music now, actually a lot more musical than so-called music now. It was programming and it had already fallen. If you took the best Zeppelin you could find and stacked it up against the best so-called classical composer, you're not in the same ballpark. You are not in the same ballpark. You're looking at orchestras that went from roughly 12. I've seen orchestras that were close to 100 pieces. That is a different game. That is a different level of music knowing. And it, it, it includes all these things that reflected nature. Like we called them woodwinds. Those are natural ideas. Brass. Um, it even incorporates the idea that we're making our medals. If you go and look at the sections of, a, of any orchestra, because there are many different sizes, you're in a different ballpark. If you take the sheet music to say Stairway to Heaven and lay it down next to Beethoven's Fifth, if you want to pull the most popular from one band and then go back to classical, his Fifth would probably be the most popular. Lay those sheet mix- musics next to each other. You're not in the same ballpark. The complexity and the knowing in Beethoven is going to blow Jimmy Page and the boys out of the water. And we have to admit what's true. And all the more so when you come up to rap, where we've come to a point where our music doesn't even really require harmony and melody. As a matter of fact, a lot of it might be better described as maybe poetry to a beat or a tribal beat. I don't know how I would describe it. But the musicality has fallen. And that's at the root of what we're going to get out here, why this has happened. It's all social programming.
1: While his origins are uncertain, the most common story has Dionysus as the son of Zeus and Samil, who was a daughter of Cadmus, king of Thebes. Out of jealousy, Zeus' wife, Hera, persuaded the pregnant Samil to prove her lover's divinity by requesting that he appear in real person. Zeus complied, but his power was too great for the mortal Samil, who was then blasted with thunderbolts. However, Zeus saved his son by sewing him up in his thigh and keeping him there until he reached maturity so that he was born twice. Dionysus was then conveyed by the god Hermes to be brought up by the Bacchantes, or the Maenads or Thyads, of Nyssa which is a purely imaginary location.
0: So part of what you're going to recognize in a story like this is you don't have the context anymore to put it together. Uh, There may be some very old among us who got classical educations who can do a better job of it. But what we're looking at here is a thing where we've almost lost our tenuous connection to try to realize what's actually being communicated. But if you notice the language, which like Dylan Secotio, we're about to do an episode with him. As a matter of fact, I think it follows this episode. Um, the language is there. So they're talking about Dionysus. And then you see the Bacchus idea because he's brought up by the Bacantes. So you see the Bacchanalia language, the, the word, the characteristics of the vibration of that word are already introduced. But as we move along, hopefully it'll begin to make more sense.
1: Being strongly associated with wine as well as pleasure, everywhere that Dionysus went, he would plant vines and would teach the people viniculture. On his travels, Dionysus was accompanied by satyrs and maenads or bacchae. These were possessed women who gave themselves to ecstasy. In the real world, there was the cult of Dionysus, who put many activities of physical pleasure into action. Sounds an awful lot like groupies, doesn't it?
0: Right. I mean, go to a Grateful Dead following. What are you looking at there, right? It's it's basically the same idea in a more modern time. Uh, These women were possessed and gave themselves to ecstasy. You can picture uh, from the old images of people who tried to to imagine and paint the classical scenes we're describing. And what do you see? You see people dancing. You see people playing music. There's an awful lot of wine. The grape is always there. By the way, when we come up to the Bible and we're talking about the wine, the the spirit of the grape is the wine. See, people have lost these tenuous touches. That's how they pulled off Covidius Minimus. Almost no one could remember that their breath was their spirit. Had the majority of us recalled that our breath was our spirit, how many of us would have then been willing to veil our own spirit granted to us by the creator? It's about perception. And so here we are. You don't have to think very hard to match up this kind of Dionysian party that was briefly described to a hippie (laughs) love-in with a little Led Zeppelin in the background or something like that.
1: So wine back in those days is very different than it is today. It was a lot thinner for the most part and didn't have as high of an alcohol content so that you could have very long extended parties or festivities, something like that, where you could be drinking a lot of wine and you wouldn't be totally wrecked like you would be today if you drank two bottles of something that's far, far higher alcohol content.
0: You know, it's interesting because I have read versions of why that is. Part of why that is later in the season, away from the harvest and the grape production, is if they watered it down, they lengthened the amount they had. The other part was exactly what Jason said. If you had straight wine and some guy has five glasses, he can't really do his job. And it was a ubiquitous drink, apparently. Um, and so they watered it back so that people wouldn't be wasted all the time, apparently. And there's some some other claim uh, that we get the word to this day, toast, was because the uh, Romans were dipping toast into their wine or something like that. There's versions and versions of that
1: last thing. One of the things they also mixed with it is seawater. So I don't think you could really guzzle tons of seawater at one time without making yourself sick.
0: That's a weird thing to consider because as far as I know, if you drink very much seawater and you don't have real water, you are going to be very sick.
1: Dionysus had the power to inspire and to create ecstasy and his cult had special importance for art and literature. Performances of tragedy and comedy in Athens were part of two festivals of Dionysus, the Linnea and the great or city Dionysia. Dionysus was also honored in lyric poems, which were called dithyrams. In Roman literature, his nature seems to be a bit simplified as he is simplistically portrayed as the Jolly Bacchus, who is invoked at drinking parties.
0: There's a couple of interesting things that were just laid down here. But one thing is weird is in some places you'll see the claim that after all these orgies and these party and these Dionysian or a Bacchus party, there was a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. There are people that will say that's not true. There are plenty of accounts like the one we're reading where that idea is completely omitted. But to get back to the point, What you know, you you want to do the Grateful Dead, you want to do Deep Purple, you want to use these things to socially engineer. So, here's your archetype, uh, archetype Dionysus had the power to inspire and to create ecstasy. It reminds me of an interview that Carlos Santana once did, where he claimed he was telling women that wanted to be with him, You listen to my music, and I make you feel a way that I can't possibly make you physically feel. To make the point of the power of his guitar. And as it goes forward in this paragraph that Jason just read from, it is completely clear that there is no dividing Dionysian ideas, Bacchanalian ideas from, wait for it, the movies, the film, the art, the performance. Um, here it is right here in this in this paragraph talking about the tragedy and the comedy so in our time that would be a bit like saying there's no separating the hollywood aspect of this right
1: the same archetype existed then dionysus is most often depicted with a thyrsus a fennel stem scepter that would sometimes be wound with ivy and dripping with honey it is both a beneficent wand as well as a weapon that is used to destroy those who oppose his cult and the freedoms he represents. Those who partake of his mysteries are believed to become possessed and empowered by the God himself. And this is starting <laughs> to remind me of the 1960s.
0: Yeah, so think about what we're saying here. You know, that's it's a bit like being possessed. But what's interesting about the thrices, this little wand, that he held. These are the types of things that I notice from time to time because I'm not educated in classics as much as I wish I was. You'll see a symbol and it won't register. And then later you'll realize, oh, that was a thrice, you know, or something like that. But what's interesting is there's multiple descriptions of this thing that Dionysius Dionysus was holding. One of them puts a pine cone at the end, which is interesting because the pine cone often symbolizes the third aisle or pineal gland, but that pine cone is whole, is hiding a steel spear tip. So it's hiding the danger of what he has in his hand. So these are things to, to be aware of, to latch onto, because Constantly, I see symbols that I don't recognize. And sometime later in time, when I learn something more about Greek or Roman myth or what would be called the classics, I begin to realize that symbolism is used all the time right in front of us because none of us were taught the classics. They can get away with it. They're not only using the archetypes to socially program us because none of us can put one with one, um, the little symbols come along too, and very few of us can recognize them anymore. As, as, as recently as the 1930s, a classics department at a high school in New York City might have 25 to 30 professors teaching Latin, Greek, and the classics. 25 to 30 just for the classics department.
1: How the mighty have fallen. There were many mysterious groups and factions mentioned throughout Greek mythology, but one of the biggest was the cult of Dionysus. It flourished throughout ancient Greece and had a strong association with centaurs, satyrs, and other nature entities in Greek mythology. Not surprisingly, they were associated with euphoria and ecstasy, normally achieved through ceremonies that involved copious amounts of wine and characteristic symbolism aimed at removing one's inhibitions that were supposed to bring them closer to nature. Two prominent Athenian festivals were held annually in dedication to Dionysus, which were the Dionysia and the Linnea. At these events, phallic processions were a key feature, and the phallus was often fetishized with obscenities and celebrations. The frenzy that Dionysus was said to induce was called bacchia.
0: You know, when I was a roadie, one of the last shows that I did with the band, what's the band from Australia that was so popular in excess, the lead singer, Michael Hutchins, I think was his name. He was such a sex symbol, but near the end of his life, we did in the Embarcadero of San Diego, a show, and I was a roadie for the whole thing. There were two or three bands. I think if I remember, they had these huge vibrators, like a woman would use sexually on the stage. There's your archetype. If you go back and look at the art that they don't really show publicly, you'll constantly see satyrs with giant phalluses. This is the same archetype being echoed back. But look, it's all here. Um, a strong association with centaurs and satyrs. There's, there's your animal, right? One of them's half goat, the other one's half horse. It's the animal side. They're half human and they're half animal. So it's leveraging up the animalistic tendency. What was associated euphoria and ecstasy? Well, all the drugs of the sixties did that copious amounts of the things that are getting you high. I mean, it's all here. Uh, it's, it's, there may come a time when I say, basically there has been no trick played on us. That isn't just a replay of an older idea. And all of them came from Greek mythical ideas. I suspect that's probably true. It's just that I don't know enough, no matter how much I study The Greek classics, I always feel like I'm behind the eight ball. I don't know enough. They're referencing other things that I know I haven't read. Uh, It's a lot. And I know why there were so many teachers in those classics department. There was a lot there to learn. And it was important to a more educated society than it is to us
1: now. It seems that drinking wine during your uh, festivities seemed to be a bigger thing in the 60s and maybe even into the 70s. Even the mainstream reason that Jimi Hendrix was supposed to have died was supposedly from choking uh, on his own vomit uh, after imbibing too much wine.
0: That's a double because the drummer for Led Zeppelin supposedly went in the same way after what's interesting about it is they all, I forget whether it's 30 measures I think it's vodka, some hard alcohol, 30 or 40 measures. They always say, I'm oh, really? So someone was there counting John Bonham shots as he killed himself. It's all a bit much, but it's the same story, isn't it? He choked to death on his vomit from alcohol poisoning. But I'll ask you, Jason, you did the research to write the bullet points. Did you come across the human sacrifice idea in the Bacchanalia, in the Dionysian parties, orgies?
1: No, but there did seem to be implications that the mysteries of Dionysus uh, got pretty intense. I think they kind of implied it at best.
0: So I might have missed it because I've seen it both ways. It didn't enter my consciousness that I should be questioning why is why is there? I, I guess in my mind I thought, well, this was a special one. They killed someone or something. But fortune brought it up, and that's what got me thinking about it. So if in fact there was some kind of a sacrifice on the tail end of this let's now associate the idea of something as ridiculous as the 27 club i'm sure people know that have been into rock and roll music what the 27 club is for some reason a bunch of very famous rock and rollers died at the age 27 and they were inducted into the 27 club so to speak the myth of the 27 club you can look it up there's a lot of them there and to me it almost feels like the false news narratives, like there's been one now. The president's up there threatening to take all the rifles away because there was another stage shooting of some kind. Uh, It feels like what's happened is the actual sacrifice has rolled over into a perceived sacrifice. And if enough people think the sacrifice or the death actually happened, then it's good enough. We'll roll with that. That's what it feels like to me.
1: It is not known exactly when and who started the cult of Dionysus, but it is believed to date back to at least the Mycenaean times, as ancient Mycenaean tablets have been found displaying the name of Dionysus in Linear B, an old syllabic language that dates back to 1450 BC that is also believed to be the origin of the Greek alphabet. The cult then continued to be a constant feature of ancient Greek culture and was eventually introduced to the south of Italy around 200 B.C.
0: So the book that I'm always talking about, The Worship of Augustus Caesar, it's a critically important book. The problem is is I'm never going to be smart enough in my lifetime to ensure that everything there was correctly put forward. What I do know is the amount of work and the level of thinking that went into it is off the charts by today's standards of a well-researched teacher or professor what it basically says is we got precious little that wasn't censored you know there were things in the in the roman empire they were called censors <laughs> i'm not not even kidding you but he goes and he draws all these lines and he even says the marbles where things were written they went and got out their chisels and they censored those too He said the calendar is such an insidious thing that it's never been ignored. It's always been put to insidious uses. He goes on to describe that at one point in Rome, he claims they were so worried about the calendar that someone made a rule that they had to take a steel spike once a year and hammer it into this marble or something like that, because it's hard to edit a steel spike. And he said it didn't help. They still did it. The walk away. is that almost everything that went forward from the Roman Empire was edited in some way, censored, edited, removed, dates scrambled around. Uh, And if you go into that book, it's worth your time. I guarantee you it's worth your time. But what does it tell us of what we're trying to do here? Did we get a level shot at what used to be said about Dionysus? For that matter, are we getting a level shot from what someone in the 1880s would have known? What we do know is the archetype is there. What we do know is researchers that are better than I will ever be have put it together, which is what launched us on this. So as we finish out the Greek part and the Roman part, you're looking at the archetype, the existent portion of the human mind that was reached back and then releveraged out to achieve a dishonorable end. And we'll just mark the 60s, actually started in the 50s, if we tie it to rock music.
1: Well, the jazz scene that had started eh, kind of in the 1920s, but took off really big in the next decade, uh, they drew heavily from this, too. And I think that's where rock and roll got a lot of it from. It kind of moved along through the ages.
0: Good point. Uh, Mr. Ford, maker of the Model T, uh, we were told is on the record as just hooting and hollering that jazz was such an insult to a, a music lover. It was such a low grade, low minded version of what music was supposed to be. He railed against it. And do we need to remind you about Beale street where these things were going on jazz and the beginnings of blues and all this. Um, if you read James Shelby Downard, he has much to say about what was going on there. And it's not going to be much different from what we're laying down. It was a thing that existed in the world—it was in the mainstream, it was in myth, it was an archetype. People subconsciously, at least, were aware of, and then it was reemployed to do. From my point of view, social engineering—social engineering of the social engineering I'm aware of—the sex, drugs, and rock and roll were more effective than anything else I'm aware of in terms of social engineering. It broke the family unit. It broke it not the same as what it was in the 50s or the early 60s. It drugged out how many generations are we away now? If you want to count a generation at 20 years, think about the generations. If you want to count it at 30, still think about how many generations are still contending with the introduction of drug culture. And that's what was done on the back of these archetypes.
1: And the other place that a lot of this gets drawn from for rock music came from the old blues juke joints where... There was definitely a lot of drinking and debauchery going on there as well, but we'll be getting to that uh, in a little while.
0: I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. Go
1: ahead. The Dionysia was a large festival celebrated in ancient Athens in honor of Dionysus. The central events of this festival were the theatrical performances of dramatic tragedies and, from 487 BC, comedies. It was the second most important festival after the Panathenaia. The Dionysia actually consisted of two related festivals, the rural Dionysia and the city Dionysia, which took place in different parts of the year.
0: So it's interesting. I mean, here it is in black and white. There's no separating acting, right? There's no separating acting back in time. What's there? The music is there. The partying is there. The spectacle. But what's more is there's an underlying theme. Today, we are going to witness a tragedy. This other day, we're going to witness a comedy. So it's thematic. And anything that is thematic can be programming. Because what is the point of watching any kind of a dramatic portrayal of any kind if the story doesn't draw you in? And for a human mind to be drawn into a story is the possibility for programming to follow. And at the very least, we know now that there was probably never a time if there was a time of so-called kings and queens when they didn't realize the power of the stage and I'll underscore that Jason and I covered the first dramatic television show ever to be put on TV came out of some Lord's manor. There was queen is in the title and it was done on nine 11. They always knew this archetype, the power of what this was. And we're just underscoring here. The Dionysian kind of get high, get orgy, maybe have a, Sacrifice, depending on who you read, it's completely tied to dramatic performance, what we would call Hollywood these days or TV.
1: And here you see the laying down of the concept of playing a character or putting on a front tied in with this God image.
0: You know, there's a whole creepy side that we're not going to get into, but you'll see there's different, the actors will say, well, there's different ways you can act. And one of the ways is to actually I don't even know how to say it. I guess the spirit of what they're trying to be comes into them. And so the entire time they're acting that part, they are that character. And you'll often hear um, other people from the Hollywood set saying, yeah, it's just like that person was inside him. There's some kind of a creepy, I don't even know what you call it, trance spirit thing going on there. And I imagine that too goes back to this because we can look at examples um, maybe the less insidious examples would come from the Oracle of Delphi, where there's some people will tell you there was a crack in the earth and there were breathing fumes. Other people will tell you there was some other drug that induced this kind of trancy state, but there's versions of that all the way through. When you look back at these older archetypes, um, who knows how dark the dark side is. I will never know because I'm not going there. If they're taking spirits into themselves from somewhere else, I'm not interested. Have fun boys. You play with fire, you might get burned.
1: There's a very common mainstream example of that. When Jim Carrey was doing the movie Man in the Moon about yep. Andy Kaufman, that uh, he he described in detail that uh, he felt like Andy was being channeled. I, if I remember correctly, the movie's getting on now, but uh, that was his approach to it by burying himself in the concept of the spirit of Andy Kaufman.
0: How did Andy die? Was that a cancer death or was it yes. a
1: tragic death? Cancer death, yeah.
0: Yeah. Cancer death. So what's creepy is, you know, you start to get into some of the Steiner work. He'll start to talk about people that are killed in a violent way on purpose, because apparently there's a bridge over to the other side that shouldn't be there. Otherwise, as I started to get into that, I skipped through, as I said, I'm not interested in that. I've got better things to do. I want to go see the sunlight in my days, but it, It's a prime example. As a matter of fact, Jason, if I'm not mistaken, there was a documentary made about Jim Carrey's portrayal, and in it, it says things like no one wanted to be around him. They were so freaked out by whatever he was doing.
1: Bacchus was the Roman god of agriculture, wine, and fertility, and the equivalent to Dionysus. His plants were vines and twirling ivy, and he carried a pine cone-topped staff. His followers were goat-footed satyrs and maenads, as well as wild women who danced energetically during his festivals. Bacchus is the son of Jupiter and was often depicted as a handsome, androgynous youth with long hair. (laughs) At times, he has also been depicted as an older man. He is often shown holding a drinking cup and wearing a stylish crown of ivy on top of his head. Bacchus,
0: the son of Jupiter, handsome, androgynous, and long hair. Rock on, right? Is that the David Bowie era of the 60s and 70s? Sounds like it. But let's go back up to the top. So Bacchus is a Roman god of agriculture. The vine, the grapevine, has played such an underrated part of our history. It is throughout the classics. It is throughout the Bible. But here again, we're talking about a thing that makes you high, and the dude's carrying a pine cone top staff, and in some accounts, it's hiding a deadly steel spear point. That pine cone almost always symbolizes your third eye. So is there a hidden part of this archetype where people are striving to spiritually arise to wake up their, their intuition, which is your third eye, your spiritual vision? Is there a reference here to we're going to keep these monkeys high? Why is it a Seder? Because we're going to push them back to the animal half. half. Why is it a, 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 a centaur? Because we're going to push the half-human down to his half-animal, and then we're going to you know, stick this pine cone in their third eye so it doesn't wake up because they're too wasted all the time. Feels to me like there's something like that going on within this archetype, but I'm just not sure.
1: Bacchus was worshipped in a ritual called the Bacchanalia that was held on numerous occasions throughout the year. The Bacchanalia that were held were unofficial, privately-funded, popular Roman festivals of Bacchus, which drew heavily from various ecstatic elements of the Greek Dionysia. As mentioned, they were almost certainly associated with Rome's native cult of Liber Pater. Because this was a mystery religion, very little specifics are known of their rites. They do, however, seem to have been popular and well-organized throughout the central and southern Italian peninsula.
0: So that's the thing about these things that maybe have a very dark side that's not commonly written about. It's just like it's alluded to where someone says, you really don't want to mess with that. Bad things will happen. And that's where they leave it. But there have been plenty of accounts where people have claimed things like back in the day when LP records were still being printed, when they took the ma- the master that was going to print off all the copies, they would put spells on that master and do things like every time this song is played anywhere in the world, these spirits are going to go do whatever they do. There were plenty of claims. And at the time when I first heard them, I think people thought, okay, great. This is, you know, just some, some scary claim to get people to be more interested in this article or it was it even made it to the internet at certain points but you've got to wonder if there's some of that going on when you read what's going on here i mean if you're if it's privately funded those are well to do people those are connected people um it's hard to know but it seems to have been very cult-like and if you want to be honest about it the music industry that we're about to tie all this to it's very cult-like
1: so part of what you're referencing there is uh, a group of, not interviews, but uh, I guess you would call them lectures from a Christian man who went by the cover name John Todd. They're available on YouTube, Last I Knew. I've never been able to uh, authenticate them, for sure, but the things that he talks about in those lectures definitely talk about just the darkness of the music industry that he apparently, uh, well, or at least that he claims, to have been a part of and left because he didn't want to be around all of that evil.
0: So years before I was a roadie, not anything to do with the music industry other than loving rock and roll music. I dated a girl who was in very in that scene. Um, and she had made comments, but refused to talk about it and referred to some of the women that showed up at the big bands parties, like the Eagles. Uh, she referred to them as witches and said it wasn't a joke, but she wouldn't talk about it at the time. So who knows who wants to know actually I mean, I guess it's a good thing to be aware of if you want to avoid it, but I'm just saying.
1: Well, enough has gotten out at this point that I I think most people are uh, well aware that maybe not every single person involved in the entertainment industry, but a very large section of it is very much wrapped up into various aspects of an esoteric nature, to put it nicely.
0: So let's just throw it on the table. Uh, There was a version of Seinfeld where they were making fun of this very thing. Most people just think it's funny, but I had already recognized that songs like Hotel California, songs like, you know, there's there's a few of them. These big icon, it's just different. They're just different somehow. People who don't play instruments will think, oh, that was cleverly written song. There's more to it than that. In the Seinfeld episode, when a guy heard, I think it was Desperado by the Eagles, he'd go into a trance and people trying to talk to him, he'd say, shut up, shut up. I got to hear this song and this is going on. And so one of the characters in Seinfeld said, well, I want my own song. So the song she picks, wait for it, is Witchy Woman by the Eagles, which is the Tia. Now, at the end, there is a, a doctor doing surgery. With the music on, and I forget what song comes on, but he goes into the trance. I believe that's a direct reference to what we're kind of skirting around because Seinfeld, one thing about Seinfeld, hate it or love it or however the hell you feel about it, it was huge in this country. The night the last Seinfeld went on the air, San Diego, California streets were vacant because we went out and we couldn't believe it. There was no one that wasn't home watching that. The thing about Seinfeld is every episode usually has an itemized three-part storyline. There's three different ideas going conjunctive. And what you will notice is they're pre-echoing. They're making fun because nobody knows anything. And I would just point you to that. that episode. I can't tell you the name of it, but it shouldn't be too hard to look up. I accept that what they're referencing is what we're talking about, the dark side of what we're talking about.
1: The secretive nature and conspiracies that arose during the Bacchanalia eventually led to the Roman Senate introducing legislation to control the Bacchanalia. The legislation of 186 survives in the form of an inscription and informs that it brought the Bacchanalia under the control of the Senate and thus of the Roman pontifices. The existing cult chapters and colleges were dismantled, Congregations of mixed gender were permitted, but were limited to no more than two men and three women, and any Bacchanalia gathering must seek prior approval from the Senate. Men were outright forbidden to be a priest of Bacchus. What
0: the hell were they conjuring, Jason? Why did the Roman Pontifice and Senate give a damn unless they were conjuring something? I guess you could go the other side of it, that this is a control mechanism and they want to control. But what they're claiming here is they limited it. In other words, they reduced the gathering, the power, all that. Sounds to me, maybe they're also admitting that there was a human sacrifice. It's hard to know. In some places you read that was part of it. Very smart people. I know say that at one point in antiquity, that was part of it, but there must have been a dark side. What are they limiting? Is it a conjuring thing that they're limiting? I wonder.
1: Well, there's probably that aspect to it, but there's also the notion that people conspire when they get together and the drink starts to flow and everyone starts having a good time. Ideas start to flow often as well.
0: Well, think about it, though. Everybody's wasted. In the previous things that we've covered, you pointed out that the rich and famous were funding these things and controlling them. And if it's true that there's no separating this from acting or enter- the entertainment business, whichever. what do you think bread and circuses about? If we want to be honest, let's look at where we are right now. We know flat out, if we know anything about antiquity, that one of the ways Rome was controlled is what they made fun of by calling bread and circuses. There were guys that were coming into power that would show... Three months, they would have, you know, the circus, you know, races, death battles, killing animals, just anything, giving out the free bread. Where are we now? Let's look at the younger generation. What portion of a younger generation's life right now, on average, is controlled by entertainment? I'll bet you it's like 80%. They're constantly in a screen. They play way more video games than they should. I mean, I know some young people who did that eight hours a day regularly. Um, That used to be what we worked, right? That used to be the time we spent at a job. So I'm just saying, I mean,
1: what would you add? So that is obviously still extremely common, but people have found ways of funneling that into careers now where people will watch other people playing video games on streams, live streams, and donate money to them. So this has uh, come a long way since the the days of uh, sitting around playing Atari for too long or Nintendo.
0: Well, any way you slice it, Jason, the modern era is basically almost nonstop bread and circus. Uh, maybe it's a little light on the bread side, but the entertainment side is just, I mean, think about it. It's 24-7. Entertainment is such a portion of what it means to live in the West yet, and I would I would draw one-to-one. The archetypal idea that told the rulers of Rome that we read about, you can control the population with bread and circus. I don't think it's any different than what we're seeing now. And I think that's basically the underarching the intent of the internet is to just turn us into entertained, inconsequential beings. And I think it's working to some degree.
1: So the bread and circuses was used during a time of the Roman Empire while they were in decline. And I strongly would suggest that the same thing is going on now. However, the people who are putting out a lot of the bread and circuses, a lot of the entertainment, as I keep commenting so often, I think they're getting very sloppy with it and very foolish because the entertainment is not so entertaining anymore. So if the bread is stale and the circus is lame, people are going to start looking elsewhere instead of being distracted.
0: That's true. So much of the quality has been surrendered to programming. And I think you're right. I think they're to the point where they think, oh, we can program anything. We don't even have to try. But consider something like, uh, what was that Russell Crowe movie, which is a a prime example of what we're speaking of. So I think it's called Gladiator. So in that, Marcus Aurelius, who is supposedly... It has been claimed that the best time to exist in this earth would have been under Marcus Aurelius and I think his two or three predecessors. That's what history gives us. So in the movie, this sleazy little son or, you know, someone kills him that nobody likes. So what does he do? As soon as he gets back to Rome after he murdered the beloved Marcus Aurelius, he removes the general and he puts on three months of bread and circuses to get away with it. So I I think it's, you know, the writing's on the wall. It's pretty clear what was done with this idea. And it's pretty clear what's being done with entertainment. Now it's no different. People are more interested in when their next episode of whatever comes out, when their next game of whatever comes out, how to level up at their game than they are about what's actually happening around them in this
1: world. And then of course we have sports ball of all sorts being an insane distraction. The amount of energy people put into sports ball, no matter which aspect of it that way you want to look at, If you put that much effort into something practical, that's where humanity still thrives. It's just been completely misdirected.
0: They're not even hiding it. Where does sports ball happen? It happens in a stadium, right? Where do we get that idea? I mean, it's one-to-one.
1: The concept of the Bacchanalia seems to have survived into the 18th century. Secretive organizations known as hellfire clubs emerged. Hellfire Club was a name used for several exclusive clubs for high society rakes established in Britain and Ireland in the 18th century. Most commonly, the name refers to Francis Dashwood's Order of the Friars of St. Francis of Wycombe. Such clubs, rumor had it, served as the meeting places of persons of quality who wished to take part in what were socially perceived as immoral acts, and the members were often involved in politics. Neither the activities nor membership of the clubs are easy to ascertain, but there have been identifiers that ties these clubs back to Dionysus and Bacchus.
0: Anyone out there wants to know more about this nonsense, go read James Shelby Downard. I think it's in King Kill 33. If it's not in King Kill 33, it's one of the ancillary limited writings that are associated with Downard. Basically, he takes uh, Benjamin Franklin, he puts in the Hellfire Club, he puts a few people you would never consider from the history we've been handling. What are they doing? Why are they doing this? Why are they having underground places to do it? They're conjuring. And it's even claimed in the, in the James Shelby Downard writings that there is a, me- a woman who is a medium who is sexually used to basically become some kind of a fallen witch. Um, and on and on it goes. So there's, there's a dark side here to this archetype that was brought so deftly uh, into America and Britain for openers uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. And it worked a dream. I can't imagine a thing working working any better than the social programming that hit the world in these two decades.
1: So those also, of course, had a very dark nature to them, which again gets uh, brought forward into rock music and the dark occult kind of things that get tied in very early on uh, in the 1960s to the music.
0: Uh, you know, one way to underscore what we can't talk about because we don't look at such things to any, you know, how much would you act if they're conjuring dark things, how much would you actually want to know? You know, you and me are the same. Not much, you know. Okay, I know what's happening. I'm good. But go look at the Seinfeld I mentioned, and you tell me what are they making fun of there? Um, I think it's pretty clear. At least part is pretty clear of what they're making fun of, and how it got to the point where entertainment makes fun of the use and abuse of the population at large. It's beyond me.
1: And for the last point for hour one. These concepts seem to also live in today's world with the celebration of Mardi Gras. The mainstream says that Mardi Gras is a Christian holiday and a popular cultural phenomenon that dates back thousands of years to pagan spring and fertility rites. Mardi Gras is also known as Carnival or Carnival and is celebrated in many countries around the world, predominantly those that have large Roman Catholic populations and influence. It is celebrated on the day before the religious season of Lent begins. Brazil, Venice, and New Orleans play host to some of the holiday's most famous public festivities, drawing thousands of tourists and revelers every year. It's safe to say, in New Orleans at least, that many of those celebrating take part in activities that are very similar to those from ancient Greece and Rome.
0: And and here's where you get, you know, if it looks like it is like there's a similarity, we're drawing the line, we can show that the oldest version of this archetype we're aware of is the idea of Dionysian orgies and a bacchanalian, you know, the limited information that we have, but what's going on here? Well, they're having the celebration of debauchery, because you know why? There's a religious holiday called Lent, and that's where it stops you go do everything you're not supposed to do in life and then right there at lamp boom you fast you do all these religious things right so how are, there's no separating the two it's like it's like saying there was a time in this world when it was all the same you know we act we act now like oh well that's political oh that's religious oh that's entertainment the truth of it is there's really no division a life is a life when i start walking at 2 years old and i walk all the way through Isn't everything that I pass on the way my experience, my path? There's no subdivisions in the way our minds are taught to think. And I think this is showing very effectively that there's this whole Bacchanalia thing that goes right up to the religious holiday. And the reason they're doing it, or one of the stated reasons, is because we're about to have to be good for our religious side to get what it needs. So we're going to do everything bad right down to this minute. I mean, you live in that area, Jason. I'm sure you've seen it. I've never been to the
1: Mardi Gras. So I've never gone to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, especially the French Quarter area, because there are so many people that it's just outrageous. Just driving around the city at that point in time is uh, very difficult. But yes, I have been in the area and they have parades and things like that all throughout Louisiana. And uh, while some of the parades themselves are on the tame side, then they're more for kids. The stuff that goes on down in the French Quarter during this time period is definitely what you might call debauchery.
0: Oh, its I mean, I think it's clear. You know, the the one time my nephew, we were driving back, we'd done like an 8,000 mile run around the United States. And my nephew said, I got to stop in New Orleans. I wanted a picture. I think it was on Bourbon Street. We were there at an off time. All the streets were soaking what they had been washed and everything smelled like piss and vomit and i was like oh my god i mean i i was stunned there was no one there all the streets had been washed and it was just in the air like you can't imagine um and that was the only time i went there and i realized that's you know it might be some people's thing but it's not my thing Uh, well alcohol is not really my thing so you know here we go jason we're going to wrap up our one of four five eight uh we're going to get into heavy metal headbanging We're going to get into the root of the blues. Well, the fake root of the blues used to be Robert Johnson. He's being replaced now with a guy named Charlie Patton who only has three fingers or something like that. I think we're going to get into the rock and roll, which they took the archetype we outlined in hour one And then they implemented the social engineering in in hour two. And Jason has gone so far as to jump into the book by Coleman called The Committee of 300, which is one of the must-reads. And the reason it's a must-read is because everything happened. You can't say he's wrong. Say what you want about the man, but it happened. And he pulled the statements that flat out leveled the Beatles were a Tavistock construction that a man named Adorno wrote the music and on and on we go. We're going to cover all of this. Anything you want to get in before I wrap it?
1: Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of those aspects. And uh, Coleman makes a lot of very interesting points. And we actually were going to try and see if this Dr. John Coleman was still out there. But he'd probably be 90-ish plus at this point. And uh, we think he's passed away. Because it'd be very interesting to try and pick his brain. Now, there's a very famous lecture that he did uh, from a conference. I believe it's from the early 90s that you can find on YouTube. And I did watch that. And it's about the Committee of 300 and all that. So excellent video if you want to check out his information without having to read the book. But the book is where it's at, really.
0: Actually, Fortune and I were trying to track him down. We couldn't find. uh, I I was looking for a contact. After a conversation I had with Fortune, but let's wrap this. There's hour one of episode 458. The first hour is free at crow 7 radiocom That's C R R O W 777radio.com. The full member, two hours, two hours plus. You'll know to log in and be a member for that. By the way, if you're a member, shoot the moon. The two hour feature film of all my scope work is available. The hour two here is really going to tie together why we took the time to go through the idea of the classics. It's just a shame that we live in a time where classics are not really a part of it anymore. It wasn't taught in school. It's fallen by the wayside, and it's gotten so bad that when you go to look up books to learn the classics, you can read two side by side, and the same myth may not even resemble itself. So this is the barn wall from Animal Farm. We're living it, man. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, and I hope to see you on the other side for hour two. It'll be a good one. Cheers.